in the depths of his anguish in Liberty Jail, the Prophet Joseph Smith cried out, O God, where art thou, and where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? Many of us, in moments of personal anguish, feel that God is far from us. The pavilion that seems to intercept divine aid does not cover God, but occasionally covers us. God is never hidden, yet sometimes we are covered by a pavilion of motivations that draw us away from God and make Him seem distant and inaccessible. Our own desires, rather than a feeling of Thy will be done, create the feeling of a pavilion blocking God. God is not unable to see us or communicate with us, but we may be unwilling to listen or submit to His will and His time. Our feelings of separation from God will diminish as we become more childlike before Him. That is not easy in a world where the opinions of other human beings can have such an effect on our motives. But it will help us recognize this truth. God is close to us and aware of us and never hides from His faithful children. My three-year-old granddaughter illustrated the power of innocence and humility to connect us with God. She went with her family to the open house of the Brigham City Temple in Utah. In one of the rooms of that beautiful building, she looked around and asked, Mommy, where is Jesus? Her mother explained that she would not see Jesus in the temple, but she would be able to feel His influence in her heart. Eliza carefully considered her mother's response and then seemed satisfied and said, Oh, Jesus is gone helping someone, she concluded. No pavilion obscured Eliza's understanding or obstructed her view of reality. God is close to her, and she feels close to Him. She knew that the temple is the house of the Lord, but also understood that the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ has a body and can only be in one place at a time. If He was not at His house, she recognized that He must be in another place. And for what she knows of the Savior, she knew that He would be somewhere doing good for His Father's children. It was clear that she had hoped to see Jesus not for a confirming miracle of His existence, but simply because she loved Him. The Spirit could reveal to her childlike mind and heart the comfort all of us need and want. Jesus Christ lives, knows us, watches over us, and cares for us. In moments of pain, loneliness, or confusion, we do not need to see Jesus Christ to know that He is aware of our circumstances and that His mission is to bless. I know from my own life that Eliza's experience can be our own long after we leave childhood.
In the early years of my career, I worked hard to secure a tenured professorship at Stanford University. I thought I had made a good life for myself and for my family. We live close to my wife's parents in very comfortable surroundings. By the world's standards, I had achieved success. But I was given by the Church the chance to leave California and go to Ricks College in Rexburg, Idaho. My lifetime professional objectives might have been a pavilion dividing me from a loving father who knew better than I did what my future could hold. But I was blessed to know that whatever success I had in my career and family life to that point was a gift from God. And so, like a child, I knelt in prayer to ask what I should do. I was able to hear a quiet voice in my mind that said, It's my school. There was no pavilion shielding me from God in faith and humility. I submitted my will to His and felt His care and closeness. My years at Ricks College, during which I tried to seek God's will and do it, kept the pavilion from covering me or obscuring God's active role in my life. As I sought to do His work, I felt close to Him and felt assurance that He knew of my affairs and cared deeply for my happiness. But as they had at Stanford, worldly motivations began to present themselves to me. One was an attractive job offer extended just as I was finishing my fifth year as president of Ricks College. I considered the offer, prayed about it, and even discussed it with the First Presidency. They responded with warmth and a little humor, but certainly not with any direction. President Spencer W. Kimball listened to me describe the offer I had received from a large corporation and said, Well, Al, that sounds like a wonderful opportunity. And if we ever needed you, we'd know where to find you. (laughs) They would have known where to find me, but my desires for professional success might have created a pavilion that would make it hard for me to find God and harder for me to listen to and follow His invitations. My wife sensing I had a strong impression, but she felt that we were not to leave Ricks College. I said, that's good enough for me. But she insisted wisely that I must get my own revelation. And so I prayed again. This time I did receive direction in the form of a voice in my mind that said, I'll let you stay at Ricks College a little longer. My personal ambitions might have clouded my view of reality and made it hard for me to receive revelation. Thirty days after I was blessed with the inspired decision to turn down the job offer and stay at Ricks College, the Teton Dam burst nearby. God knew that dam would burst and that hundreds of people would need help. He let me seek counsel and gain his permission to stay at Ricks College. He knew all the reasons that my service might still be valuable at the college and in Rexburg, 
So I was there to ask Heavenly Father frequently in prayer that He would have me do those things that would help the people whose property and lives had been damaged. I spent hours working with other people to clear mud and water from homes. My desire to know and do His will gave me a soul-stretching opportunity. That incident illustrates another way we can create a barrier to knowing God's will or feeling His love for us. We can't insist on our timetable when the Lord has His own. I thought I had spent enough time in my service in Rexburg and was in a hurry to move on. Sometimes our insistent on insistence on acting according to our own timetable can obscure His will for us. In Liberty Jail, the Prophet Joseph asked the Lord to punish those who persecuted the members of the Church in Missouri. His prayer was for sure and swift retribution. But the Lord responded that in not many years hence He would deal with those enemies of the Church. In the 24th verse of the 121st section of the Doctrine and Covenants, He says, Behold, mine eyes see and know all their works, and I have in reserve a swift judgment in the season thereof for them all. For there is a time appointed for every man, according as his works shall be. We remove the pavilion when we feel and pray, Thy will be done, and in Thine own time. His time should be enough for us, since we know that He wants only what is best. One of my daughters-in-law spent many years feeling that God had placed a pavilion over her. She was a young mother of three who longed for more children. After two miscarriages, her prayers of pleading grew anguished. As more barren years passed, she felt tempted to anger. When her youngest went off to school, the emptiness of her house seemed to mock her focus on motherhood. So did the unplanned and even unwanted pregnancies of acquaintances. She felt as committed and consecrated as Mary, who declared, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. But although she spoke these words in her heart, she could hear nothing in reply. Hoping to lift her spirits, her husband invited her to join him on a business trip to California. While he attended meetings, she walked along a beautiful empty beach, her heart ready to burst. She prayed aloud. For the first time, she asked not for another child, but for a divine errand. Heavenly Father, she cried, I will give you all of my time. Please show me how to fill it. She expressed her willingness to take her family wherever they might be required to go. That prayer produced an unexpected feeling of peace. It did not satisfy her mind's craving for certainty. But for the first time in years, it calmed her heart. The prayer removed the pavilion and opened the windows of heaven. Within two weeks, she learned that she was expecting a child. The new baby was just one year old when a mission call came to my son and my daughter-in-law. Having promised to go and do anything, anywhere, she put her fear aside and took her children overseas. 
In the mission field, she had another child on a missionary transfer day. <laughs> Submitting fully to heaven's will, as this young mother did, is essential to removing the spiritual pavilions we sometimes put over our heads. But it does not guarantee immediate answers to our prayers. Abraham's heart seems to have been right long before Sarah, Sarah conceived Isaac and before they received their promised land. Heaven had other purposes to fulfill first. Those purposes included not only building Abraham and Sarah's faith, but also teaching them eternal truths that they shared with others on their long, circuitous route to the land prepared for them. The Lord's delays often seem long. Some last a lifetime. But they are always calculated to bless. They need never be times of loneliness or sorrow or impatience. Although His time is not always our time, we can be sure that the Lord keeps His promises. For any of you who now feel that He is hard to reach, I testify that the day will come that we will all see Him face to face, just as there is nothing now to obscure His view of us. There will be nothing to obscure our view of Him. We will all stand before Him in person. Like my granddaughter, we want to see Jesus Christ now, but our certain reunion with Him at the judgment bar will be more pleasing if we first do the things that make Him as familiar to us as we are to Him. As we serve Him, we become like Him and we feel closer to Him as we approach that day when nothing will hide our view. The movement toward God can be ongoing. Quote, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the palatation of the world, the Savior teaches. And then he tells us how. Quote, For I was hungered, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee? And hungered, and fed thee, or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. As, would, as we do what he would have us do for his father's children, the Lord considers it kindness to him, and we feel closer to him as we feel His love and His approval. In time, we will become like Him and will think of the Judgment Day with happy anticipation. 
The pavilion that seems to be hiding you from God may be fear of man rather than this desire to serve others. The Savior's only motivation was to help people. Many of you, as I have, have felt fear in approaching someone you have offended or who has hurt you. And yet I have seen the Lord melt hearts time after time, including my own. And so I challenge you to go for the Lord to someone, despite any fear you may have, to extend love and forgiveness. I promise you that as you do, you will feel the love of the Savior for that person and his love for you, and it will not seem to come from a great distance. For you, that challenge may be in a family, it may be in a community, or it may be across a nation. But if you go for the Lord to bless others, He will see and reward you. If you do this often enough and long enough, you will feel a change in your very nature through the Atonement of Jesus Christ. Not only will you feel closer to Him, you will feel more and more that you are becoming like Him. Then, when you do see Him, as we all will. It will be for you as it was for Moroni when he said, Now I bid unto you all a farewell. I soon go to rest in the paradise of God until my spirit and body shall again reunite and I am brought forth triumphant through the air to meet you before the pleasing bar of the great Jehovah, the eternal judge of both quick and dead. Amen. If we serve with faith, humility, and a desire to do God's will, I testify that the judgment of the great Jehovah will be pleasing. We will see our loving Father and His Son as they see us now, with perfect clarity and with perfect love. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brothers and sisters, this conference marks 49 years since I was sustained on October 4, 1963, as a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. Forty-nine years is a long time. In many ways, however, the time seems very short since I stood at the pulpit in the tabernacle and gave my very first General Conference address. Much has changed since October 4, 1963. We live in a unique time in the world's history. We're blessed with so very much, and yet it is sometimes difficult to view the problems and permissiveness around us and not become discouraged. I have found that rather than dwelling on the negative, if we will take a step back and consider the blessings in our lives, including seemingly small, sometimes overlooked blessings, we can find greater happiness. As I've reviewed the past 49 years, I've made some discoveries. One is that countless experiences I've had were not necessarily those one would consider extraordinary. In fact, at the time they transpired, they often seemed unremarkable and even ordinary. And yet, in retrospect, they enriched and blessed lives, not the least of which was my own. I would recommend 
this same exercise to you, namely that you take an inventory of your life and look specifically for the blessings, large and small, you have received. Reinforced constantly during my own review of the years has been my knowledge that our prayers are heard and answered. We are familiar with the truth found in Second Nephi in the Book of Mormon. Men are that they might have joy. I testify that much of that joy comes as we recognize that we can communicate with our Heavenly Father through prayer, and those prayers will be heard and answered. Perhaps not how and when we expected they would be answered, but they will be answered. And by a Heavenly Father who knows and loves us perfectly and who desires our happiness, hasn't He promised us, Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give the answer to thy prayers. Close quote. For the next few minutes allotted to me, I would like to share with you just a tiny sampling of the experiences I've had wherein prayers were heard and answered, and which, in retrospect, brought blessings into my life as well as in the lives of others. My daily journal, kept over all these years, has helped provide some specifics which I most likely would not otherwise be able to recount. In early 1965, I was assigned to attend state conferences and to hold other meetings throughout the South Pacific area. This was my first visit to that part of the world. It was a time never to be forgotten. Much that was spiritual in nature occurred during this assignment as I met with leaders, members, and missionaries. On the weekend of Saturday and Sunday, February 20th and 21st, we were in Brisbane, Australia, to hold regular conference sessions of the Brisbane Stake. During meetings on Saturday, I was introduced to the district president from an adjoining area. As I shook his hand, I had a strong impression that I needed to speak with him and provide counsel. And so I asked him if he would accompany me to the Sunday morning session the following day so that this could be accomplished. Following the Sunday session, we had an opportunity to visit together. We talked of his many responsibilities as district president. As we did so, I felt impressed to offer him specific suggestions concerning missionary work and how he and his members could help the full-time missionaries in their labors in this area, his area. I later learned that this man had been praying for guidance in this regard. To him, our visit was a special witness. His prayers were heard and answered. This was seemingly unremarkable meeting, which I am convinced was guided by the Spirit, which made a difference in that district president's life and administration, in the lives of his members, and in the success of the missionaries there. 
My brothers and sisters, the Lord's purposes are often accomplished as we pay heed to the guidance of the Spirit. I believe that the more we act upon the inspiration and impressions which come to us, the more the Lord will entrust to us His errands. I have learned, as I mentioned in previous messages, never to postpone a prompting. On one occasion many years ago, I was swimming laps at the old Deseret Gym in Salt Lake City when I felt the inspiration to go to the university hospital to visit a good friend of mine who had lost the use of his lower limbs because of a malignancy and the surgery which followed. I immediately left the pool, dressed, was soon on my way to see this good man. When he arrived at his room, I found it was empty. Upon inquiry, I learned I would probably find him in the swing we pulled area of the hospital, an area which was used for physical therapy. Such turned out to be the case. He guided himself there in his wheelchair, was the only occupant of the room. He was on the far side of the pool, near the deep end. I called to him, and he maneuvered his wheelchair over to greet me. We had an enjoyable visit, and I accompanied him back to his hospital room, where I gave him a blessing. I later learned from my friend that he had been utterly despondent that day and had been contemplating taking his own life. He prayed for relief, but began to feel that his prayers had gone unanswered. He went to the pool with the thought that this would be a way to end his misery by guiding his wheelchair into the deep end of the pool. I had arrived at a critical moment in response to what I know with inspiration from on high. My friend was able to live many more years years filled with happiness and gratitude. How pleased I am to have been an instrument in the Lord's hands on that critical day at the swimming pool. On another occasion, as Sister Monson and I were driving home after visiting friends, I felt impressed that we should go into town on driving many miles to pay a visit to an elderly widow who had once lived in our ward. Her name was Della Thomas. At the time, she was a resident in a care center. That early afternoon, we found her to be extremely frail, but lying peacefully on her bed. Zella had long been blind, but she recognized our voices immediately. She asked if I might give her a blessing, adding that she was prepared to die the Lord wanted her to return home. There was a sweet, peaceful spirit in the room, and all of us knew that her remaining time in mortality would be brief. Zella took me by the hand and said that she prayed fervently that I would come to see her and provide her a blessing. I told her that we'd come because of direct inspiration from our Heavenly Father. I kissed her on the forehead 
only that I would perhaps never again see her mortality. Such proved to be the case, for she passed away the following day. To have been able to provide some comfort and peace to our sweet Zella was a blessing to her and to me. The opportunity to be a blessing in the life of another often comes unexpectedly. On one extremely cold Saturday night during the winter of 1983-84, Sister Monson and I drove several miles to the mountain valley of Midway, Utah, where we have a home. The temperature that night was minus 24 degrees Fahrenheit, minus 31 degrees Celsius. We wanted to make certain all was well at our home there. We checked and found that it was fine, so we left to return to Salt Lake City. We barely made it the few miles to the highway before our car stopped working. The battery went dead. We were completely stranded. I've seldom, if ever, been as cold as we were that night. Reluctantly, we began walking toward the nearest town. The car is whizzing past us. Finally, one car stopped, and a young man offered to help. We eventually found that the diesel fuel in our gas tank had thickened because of the cold, making it impossible for us to drive the car. This kind young man drove us back to our midway home. I attempted to reimburse him for his services, but he graciously declined. He indicated that he was a Boy Scout and wanted to do a good turn. <laughs> I identified myself to him, and he expressed, he expressed his appreciation for the privilege to be of help. Assuming that he was about missionary age, I asked him if he plans, had plans to serve a mission. He indicated he was not certain just what he wanted to do. On the following Monday morning, I wrote a letter to this young man and thanked him for his kindness. In the letter, I encouraged him to serve a full-time mission. I enclosed a copy of one of my books and underscored the chapters on missionary service. About a week later, the young man's mother telephoned and advised that her son was an outstanding young man, but that because of certain influence in his life, his long-held desire to serve a mission had diminished. She indicated she and his father had fasted and prayed that his heart would be changed. They placed his name on the prayer roll of the Provo Temple. They hoped that somehow, in some way, his heart would be touched for good and return to his desire to fill the mission and to serve the Lord faithfully. The mother wanted me to know that she looked upon the events of that cold evening as an answer to their prayers in his behalf. I said, I agree with you. After several months and more communication with this young man, Sister Bosner and I were overjoyed to attend his missionary farewell. Prior to his departure, 
<laughs> Where? Or Canada, Vancouver Mission. Was it chance that our paths crossed on that cold December night? I do not for one moment believe so. Rather, I believe our meeting was an answer to a mother's and father's heartfelt prayer for the son they cherish. Again, my brothers and sisters, our Heavenly Father is aware of our needs and will help us as we call upon Him for assistance. I believe that no concern of ours is too small or insignificant. The Lord is in the details of our lives. I should like to conclude by relating one recent experience which had an impact on hundreds. It occurred at the cultural celebration for the Kansas City Temple just five months ago. As with so much that happens in our lives, at the time it seemed to be just another experience where everything worked out. However, as I learned of the circumstances associated with the cultural celebration the evening before the temple was dedicated, I realized that the performance that night was not ordinary. Rather, it was quite remarkable. As with all cultural events held in conjunction with temple dedications, the youth in the Kansas City, Missouri Temple District had rehearsed the performance in separate groups in their own areas. The plan was they would meet all together in the large rented municipal center on the Saturday morning of the performance so that they could learn when and where to enter, where they were to stand, how much space should be between them and the person next to them, how to exit the main floor, and so forth. Many details which they would have to grasp during the day as those in charge put the various scenes together so that the final performance would be polished and professional. There was just one major problem that day. The entire production was dependent on pre-recorded segments that would be shown on the large screen, known as a jumbotron. These recorded segments were critical to the entire production. They not only tied it all together, but each televised segment went into the next performance. The video segments provided the framework on which the entire production depended, and the jumbotron was not working. <laughs> Technicians worked frantically to solve the problem while the youth waited, hundreds of them, losing precious rehearsal time. The situation began to look impossible. The writer and director of the celebration, Susan Cooper, later explained, as we moved from plan A to B to Z, we knew that it wasn't working. As we were looking at the schedule, we knew that it was going to be beyond us. But we knew that we had one of the greatest strengths on the floor below—3,000 youth. We needed to go down and tell them what was happening and draw upon their faith. Just an hour before the audience would begin to enter the center, 3,000 youth knelt on the floor and prayed together. 
They prayed that those working on the Jumbotron would be inspired to know what to do to repair it. They asked their Heavenly Father to make up for what they themselves could not do because of the shortage of time. Said one who wrote about it afterward, it was a prayer the youth will never forget, not because the floor was hard, but because the Spirit melted their bones. Close quote. It was not long before one of the technicians came to tell them that the problem had been discovered and corrected. He attributed the solution to luck. <laughs> but all those youth knew better. When we entered the municipal center that evening, we had no idea of the difficulties of the day. Only later did we learn of them. What we witnessed, however, was a beautiful, polished performance, one of the best I've seen. The youth radiated a glorious, powerful spirit, which was felt by all who were present. They seemed to know just where to enter, where to stand, and how to interact with all the other performers around them. When I learned that their rehearsals had been cut short, and many of the numbers had not been rehearsed by the entire group, I was astonished. No one would have known. The Lord had indeed made up the difference. I never cease to be amazed at how the Lord can motivate and direct the length and breadth of His kingdom and yet have time to provide inspiration concerning one individual or one cultural celebration or one jumbotron. The fact that He can, that He does, is a testimony to me. My brothers and sisters, the Lord is in all of our lives. He wants to bless us. He wants us to seek His help. As He guides us and directs us, and as He hears and answers our prayers, we will find the happiness here and now that He desires for us. May we be aware of His blessings in our lives, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. There is almost no group in history for whom I have more sympathy than I have for the eleven remaining apostles immediately following the death of the Savior of the world. I think we sometimes forget just how inexperienced they still were and how totally dependent upon Jesus they had of necessity been. Of them he had said, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me? But of course, to them, he hadn't been with them nearly long enough. Three years isn't long to call an entire quorum of twelve apostles from a handful of new converts, purge from them the error of old ways, teach them the wonders of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then leave them to carry on the work until they too were killed. Quite a staggering prospect for a 
group of newly ordained elders, especially the part about being left alone. Repeatedly, Jesus had tried to tell them he was not going to remain physically present with them, but they either could not or would not comprehend such a wrenching thought. Mark writes, He taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not the saying and were afraid to ask him. Then, after such a short time to learn and even less time to prepare, the unthinkable happened. The unbelievable was true. Their Lord and Master, their Counselor and King, was crucified. His mortal ministry was over. And the struggling little church he had established seemed doomed to scorn and destined for extinction. His apostles did witness him in his resurrected state, but that only added to their bewilderment, as they surely must have wondered, what do we do now? They turned for an answer to Peter, the senior apostle. Here I ask your indulgence as I take some non-scriptural liberty in my portrayal of this exchange. In effect, Peter said to his associates, Brethren, it's been a glorious three years. None of us could have imagined such a few short months ago that the miracles we've seen and the divinity we have enjoyed, we've talked with, we've prayed with, We've labored with the very Son of God Himself. We have walked with Him and wept with Him. And on that night of the horrible ending, no one wept more bitterly than I. But that's over. He's finished His work, and He's risen from the tomb. He's worked out His salvation and ours. So, you ask, what do we do now? I don't know more to tell you than to return to your former life rejoicing. I intend to go a-fishing. And at least six of the ten other remaining apostles said in agreement, We also go with thee. John, who was one of them, writes, They went forth and entered into a ship immediately. But alas, the fishing wasn't very good. Their first night back on the lake, they caught nothing, not a single fish. With the first rays of dawn, they disappointedly turned toward the shore and saw in the distance a figure who called out to them, Children, have you caught anything? Glumly, these apostles turned again fishermen. 
gave the answer no fisherman wants to give. We have caught nothing, they muttered. And to add insult to injury, they were being called children. <laughs> Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and you shall find, the stranger calls out. And with those simple words, recognition begins to flood over them. Just three years earlier, these very men had been fishing on this very sea. On that occasion, too, they had toiled all the night and had taken nothing, the Scripture says. But a fellow Galilean on the shore that day had called out to them to let down their nets and they drew a great multitude of fishes, enough that their nets broke, the catch filling two boats so heavily they had begun to sink. Now it was happening again. These children, as they were rightly called, eagerly lowered their net, and they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. John said the obvious, it is the Lord. And over the edge of the boat, the irrepressible Peter leaped. After a joyful reunion with the resurrected Jesus, Peter had an exchange with the Savior that I consider the crucial turning point of the apostolic ministry generally, and certainly for Peter personally, moving this great rock of a man to a majestic life of devoted service and leadership. Looking at their battered little boats, their frayed nets, and a stunning pile of 153 fish, they counted them, Jesus said, to his senior apostle, Peter, do you love me more than you love all this? Peter said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. The Savior responds to that reply, but continues to look into the eyes of his disciple and says again, Peter, do you love me? Undoubtedly confused a bit by the repetition of the question. The great fisherman answers a second time. Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. The Savior again gives a brief response, but with relentless scrutiny he asks for the third time. 
Peter, do you love me? And by now, Peter surely must be feeling uncomfortable. Perhaps there is in his heart the memory of only a few days earlier when he had been asked another question three times, and he had answered equally emphatically, but in the negative. Or perhaps he began to wonder if he misunderstood the master teacher's question. Or perhaps he was searching his heart, seeking honest confirmation of the answer he had given so readily, almost automatically. Whatever his feelings, Peter said for the third time, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. To which Jesus responded, and here again I acknowledge my non-scriptural elaboration. Jesus responded perhaps saying something like, Then Peter, why are you here? Why are we back on this same shore by these same nets having this same conversation. Wasn't it obvious then, and isn't it obvious now, that if I want fish, I can get fish? (laughs) What I need, Peter, are disciples, and I need them forever. I need someone to feed my sheep and save my lambs. I need someone to preach my gospel and defend my faith. I need someone who loves me, truly, truly loves me, and loves what our Father in heaven has commissioned me to do. Ours is not a feeble message. It is not a fleeting task. It is not hapless. It is not hopeless. It is not to be consigned to the ash heap of history. It is the work of Almighty God, and it is to change the world. So, Peter, for the second and presumably the last time, I am asking you to leave all this and to go and teach and testify. You labor and serve loyally until the day in which they will do to you exactly what they did to me. Then turning to all the apostles, he might well have said something like, Were you as foolhardy as the scribes and the Pharisees, as as Herod and Pilate were? Did you, like they, think that this work could be killed simply by killing me? Did, Did you, like they, think the cross and the nails and the tomb were the end of it all? And each could blissfully go back to being whatever you were before? 
children, did not my life and my love touch your hearts more deeply than this? My beloved brothers and sisters, I'm not certain just what our experience will be on Judgment Day. But I will be very surprised if at some point in that conversation, God does not ask us exactly what Christ asked Peter. Did you love me? I think he will want to know if in our very mortal, very inadequate and sometimes childish grasp of things, did we at least understand one commandment? The first and greatest commandment of them all. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind. And if at such a moment we can stammer out, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, then he may remind us that the crowning characteristic of love is always loyalty. If you love me, keep my commandments, Jesus said. So we have neighbors to bless, children to protect, the poor to lift up, and the truth to defend. We have wrongs to make right, truths to share and good to do. In short, we have a life of devoted discipleship to give in demonstrating our love of the Lord. We can't quit and we can't go back. After an encounter with the living Son of the living God, nothing is ever again to be as it was before. The crucifixion, atonement, and resurrection of Jesus Christ mark the beginning of a Christian life, not the end of it. It was this truth, this reality, that allowed a handful of Galilean fishermen turned again apostles who without a single synagogue or sword went on to shape the history of the world in which we now live. I testify from the bottom of my heart with the intensity of my soul to all that can hear my voice that those apostolic keys have been restored to the earth and they are found in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. To those who have not yet joined in this great final cause of Christ with us, we say, please come. To those who were once with us but have retreated, preferring to pick and choose a few cultural hors d'oeuvres from the smorgasbord of the Restoration and leave the rest of the feast. I say that I fear 
you face a lot of long nights and empty nets. The call is to come, to stay true, to love God, and lend a hand. I include in that call to fixed faithfulness every returned missionary who ever stood in a baptismal font and with arm to the square said, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ. That commission was to have changed your convert forever, but it was surely supposed to have changed you forever as well. To the youth of the church rising up to missions and temples and marriage, we say love God and remain clean from the blood and sins of this generation. You have a monumental work to do, underscored by that marvelous announcement by President Monson yesterday morning. Your Father in heaven expects your loyalty and your love at every stage of your life. To all within the sound of my voice in this conference broadcast, the voice of Christ comes ringing down through the halls of time, asking each one of us, while there is time, do you love me? And for every one of us, I answer with my honor and my soul, yea, Lord, we do love thee. And having set our hand to the plow, we will never look back until this work is finished and love of God and neighbor rules the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Come unto me, that ye might feel and see. This was a commandment that the Savior extended to the inhabitants of ancient America. They felt with their hands and saw with their eyes that Jesus was the Christ. This commandment is just as important for us today as it was for them in their day. As we come into Christ, we can feel and know of a surety not with our hands and eyes, but with all our heart and mind that Jesus is the Christ. One way to come unto Christ is by seeking to learn essential truth with our hearts. As we do so, impressions that come from God will give us knowledge that we cannot get by any other means. The Apostle Peter knew of a surety that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. The Savior explained that the source for Peter's knowledge was not flesh and blood, but the Father which is in heaven. The prophet Abinadi explained the role of the feelings that come from God 
to our hearts. He taught that we cannot understand the scriptures completely unless we apply our heart to understand it. This truth was well stated in a children's book, The Little Prince, by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. In the story, the little prince became friends with a fox. Upon parting, the fox shared a secret with the little prince. He said, here is my secret. It is only with the heart that one can see rightly. What is essential is invisible to the eye. Eighty-eight-year-old brother Tomás Coelho is a good example of one who saw with his heart essential things. He was a faithful member of our High Council in Paysandú, Uruguay. Prior to joining the Church, he had an accident while riding his motorcycle. While lying on the ground, unable to stand, two of our missionaries helped him stand up and return to his home. He said that he felt something special when the missionaries came to his rescue. Later, he experienced strong feelings again when the missionaries taught him. The impact of those feelings was such that he read the Book of Mormon from cover to cover in just a few days. He was baptized and served tirelessly from that day forward. I remember him riding his motorcycle up and down the streets of our city, even in the cold and rainy winters, to bring others to church so they could feel, see, and know of a surety as he did. Today, surrounded by so much information, we might think that navigating millions of web pages will give us all that we need to know. We can find good and bad information on the web, but information alone is not enough. God has given us another source for greater knowledge, even knowledge sent from heaven. Our Heavenly Father can give us such knowledge when we navigate the celestial web in our hearts and minds. The prophet Joseph Smith said that he had the oldest book in his heart, even the gift of the Holy Ghost. We access this celestial source when we do things such as reading the scriptures, hearkening to the living prophet, and praying. It is also important to take time to be still and feel and follow the celestial promptings. When we do this, we will feel and see things that cannot be learned with modern technology. And even more, once we have some experience in navigating this celestial web, we will discern the truth even when reading secular history or any other topic. The honest seekers of truth will know the truth of all things by the power of the Holy Ghost. Now, a word of caution. Access to this celestial web is marred by iniquity and forgetting the Lord. Nephi told his brothers that they could not feel his words because they were swift to do iniquity 
and slow to remember the Lord. Iniquity hampers our ability to see, feel, and love others. Being quick to remember the Lord by praying with all the energy of heart and bringing to mind our spiritual experience expands our ability to see and feel the things of Christ. Now I ask you, do you remember the peace you felt when after much tribulation you cried out unto the Father in mighty prayer? Do you remember changing your to-do list to follow a prompting in your heart? The great men in the Book of Mormon foster access to a greater knowledge by bringing to mind their key spiritual experiences. For instance, Alma fortified his children, strengthened his children by reminding them about his own conversion. Hilaman taught Nephi and Lehi to remember, to remember that it was upon the rock of Christ that they had to build their foundation so the devil would have no power over them. By the way, we must do the same. Remembering God helps us to feel and live. This gives deeper meaning to the words of King Benjamin who said, And now, O man, remember and perish not. One of the most sacred memories I cherish is the feeling I had when I came to know the Book of Mormon was the Word of God. I learned that we can experience joy that words fall short to express. That very day on my knees, I felt a new of a surety, the things that I could not have learned in any other way. Such a memory is reason for everlasting gratitude and strengthens me in hard times. Those who receive knowledge, not from flesh and blood, but from our Heavenly Father, do know of a surety that Jesus is the Christ and this is His Church. That very knowledge provides strength to make necessary changes to come unto Christ or to follow Him. For this reason, we invite every soul to be baptized, repent, and turn unto Him now. By coming into Christ, every soul can see, feel, and know of a surety that Christ suffered and atoned for our sins, that we may have eternal life. If we repent, we will not suffer needlessly. Thanks to Him, wounded souls may be healed, and broken hearts may be mended. There is no burden that He cannot ease or remove. He knows about our infirmities and sicknesses. I promise and testify to you that when all doors seem to be closed, when everything else seems to fail, He will not fail you. Christ will help and is the way out, whether the struggle is with an addiction, depression, or something else. He knows how to succor His people. Marriages and families that are struggling for whatever reason, economic challenges, bad media influences, or family dynamics, will feel a calming influence from heaven.
It is comforting to feel and see that he rose from the dead with healing in his wings, that because of him we will meet and embrace again those beloved ones who have passed away. Verily, our conversion unto him is rewarded with our healing. I know of a surety that all of this is true. For this reason, I join my voice with that of the early inhabitants of ancient, of ancient America, exclaiming, Hosanna, blessed be the name of the Most High God. He give us salvation. I bear witness that Jesus is the Christ, the Holy Messiah. He is the Lord of hosts, our Savior and Redeemer. In the name of Jesus Christ, Amen. Amen. One of the greatest evidences we have that our beloved prophet, President Thomas S. Monson, is the Lord's chosen servant is that he has learned to follow the Savior's example, serving individually one by one. Those of us who have entered the waters of baptism have covenanted to do the same. We have covenanted to always remember the Savior and keep His commandments. And He has said, This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Notice how the following words from President Monson include the same invitation. We are surrounded by those in need of our attention, our encouragement, our support, our comfort, our kindness. We are the Lord's hands here upon the earth with a mandate to serve and to lift His children. He is dependent upon each of us." Did you hear it, the invitation to love one another? For some, serving or ministering one by one, following the Savior's example, doesn't come easily. But with practice, each of us can become more like the Savior as we serve God's children. To help us better love one another, I would like to suggest four words to remember. First, observe, then serve. Almost 40 years ago, my husband and I went to the temple for our Friday night date. We had been married only a short time, and I was nervous because this was only my second time as a newlywed. A sister sitting next to me must have noticed. She leaned over and whispered reverently, Don't worry, I'll help you. My fears were calmed, and I was able to enjoy the rest of the temple session. She first observed, then served. We are all invited to follow Jesus' teachings and to minister to others. This invitation is not limited to angelic sisters. As I share a few everyday examples of members who have learned to first observe and then serve, listen for the teachings of Jesus they illustrate. A six-year-old primary child said, When I was chosen to be a class helper, I could choose a friend to work with me. I picked a boy in my class who bullied me because he never gets chosen by others. I wanted to make him feel good. What did this child observe? He noticed that the class bully never got chosen. What did he do to serve? He simply chose him to be his friend as a class helper. Jesus taught, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. In one ward, Aaronic priesthood holders first observed and now serve in a meaningful way. 
Every week, the young men arrive early and stand outside the meeting house in rain, snow, or blistering heat, awaiting the arrival of the many elderly members in their ward. They lift wheelchairs and walkers out of cars, provide sturdy arms to grasp, and patiently escort the silver-haired seniors into the building. They are truly doing their duty to God. As they observe and then serve, they are living examples of the Savior's teaching. Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. As the new youth curriculum is implemented, the eyes of these young men will undoubtedly be open to even more opportunities to serve in a Christ-like way. Observing and serving sometimes requires great effort. An inspired young woman named Alexandria noticed that her cousin Madison was unable to complete her own personal progress requirements because she suffered from severe autism. Alexandria rallied the young women in her ward, counseled with her leaders, and determined to do something for Maddie that she could not do for herself. Each of the young women completed a portion of the personal progress activities and projects vicariously to enable Maddie to receive her own medallion. These young women will progress well into the roles of motherhood and Relief Society sisterhood because they are learning to first observe and serve in charitable ways. President Monson has reminded us that charity, the pure love of Christ, or in other words, observing and serving, is evident when an elderly widow is remembered and taken to ward functions and when the sister sitting alone in Relief Society receives the invitation, Come, sit by us. The golden rule is applicable here. Whatsoever ye would that men or women should do unto you, do ye even so to them. An observant husband served in two important ways. He relates, I was assisting my wife one Sunday with her primary class full of energetic seven-year-olds. As primary chairing time started, I noticed one of the class members huddled on her chair and obviously not feeling well. The Spirit whispered to me that she needed comfort, so I sat by her and quietly asked what was wrong. She didn't answer, so I began to sing softly to her. The primary was learning a new song, and when we sang, If I listen with my heart, I hear the Savior's voice, I began to feel the most incredible light and warmth fill my soul. I received a personal testimony of our Savior's love for her and for me. I learned that we are the Savior's hands when we serve the One. Not only did this Christ-like brother notice the need to help his wife with a class full of energetic seven-year-olds, he also gave individual service to a child in need. He followed the Savior who taught, The works which ye have seen me do, that shall ye also do. Recently, a flood opened many opportunities for disciples of Jesus Christ to first observe, then serve. Men, women, teenagers, and children saw businesses and homes destroyed and dropped everything to help clean and damp repair damaged structures. Some observed the need to help with the overwhelming task of doing laundry. Others painstakingly wiped down photographs, legal documents, letters, and other important papers, then carefully hung them out to dry to preserve whatever they could. Observing and then serving is not always convenient, and it doesn't always fit our own timetable. What better place to first observe and then serve than in the home? An example from the life of Elder Richard G. Scott illustrates, quote, 
One night, our little son Richard, who had a heart problem, awoke crying. Normally, my wife always got up to take care of a crying baby, but this time I said, I'll take care of him. Because of his problem, when he began to cry, his little heart would pound very rapidly. He would throw up and soil the bedclothing. That night, I held him very close to try to calm his racing heart and stop his crying as I changed his clothes and put on new bedsheets. I held him until he went to sleep. I didn't know then that just a few months later he would pass away. I will always remember holding him in my arms in the middle of that night. Jesus said, Whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. Sometimes we're tempted to serve in a way that we want to serve and not necessarily in the way that is needed at the moment. When Elder Robert D. Hales taught the principle of provident living, he shared the example of buying a gift for his wife. She asked, Are you buying this for me or for you? If we adapt that question to ourselves as we serve and ask, Am I doing this for the Savior or am I doing this for me? Our service will more likely resemble the ministry of the Savior. The Savior asked, and so should we, What will ye that I shall do unto you? A few weeks ago, I was hurried and frazzled with too many to-dos on my list. I had hoped to go to the temple that day, but I felt I was just too busy. As soon as that thought of being too busy for temple service crossed my mind, it awakened to me to what I most needed to do. I left my office to walk over to the Salt Lake Temple, wondering when I was going to recapture the time I was losing. Thankfully, the Lord is patient and merciful and taught me a beautiful lesson that day. As I sat down in the session room, a young sister leaned over and reverently whispered, I'm really nervous. This is only my second time in the temple. Could you please help me? How could she ever have known those words were exactly what I needed to hear? Well, she didn't know, but Heavenly Father knew. He had observed my greatest need. I needed to serve. He prompted this humble young sister to serve me by inviting me to serve her. I assure you I was the one who benefited most. I acknowledge with deep gratitude the many Christ-like people who have served our family throughout the years. I express heartfelt appreciation to my beloved husband and family who serve selflessly and with great love. May we all seek to first observe, then serve. As we do so, we are keeping covenants, and our service like President Monson's will be evidence of our discipleship. I know the Savior lives. His Atonement enables us to live His teachings. I know President Monson is our prophet today. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My message is directed to those among us who are suffering, burdened down with guilt and weakness and failure, sorrow, and uh, despair. In 1971, I was assigned to state conferences in Western Samoa, including organization of a new stake on Upolo Island. After interviews, we chartered a small plane to Savai'i Island to hold state conference there. The plane landed on a grassy field at Pa'ala. It was to return the next afternoon to take us back to Upolo Island. The day we were to return from Savai'i, it was raining. Knowing the plane could not land on the wet field, 
We drove to the west end of the island where there was a runway of sorts atop a coral break. We waited until dark, but no plane arrived. Finally, we learned by radio that there was a storm and the plane could not take off. We radioed back that we would come by boat. Someone was to meet us at Malafanua. As we pulled out of the port in Savai'i, the captain of the 40-foot boat asked the mission president if he had a flashlight. Fortunately, he did and made a present of it to the captain. We made the 13-mile crossing to Upolu Island on very rough seas. None of us realized that a ferocious tropical storm had hit the island, and we were heading straight into it. We arrived in the harbor at Maltafanua. There was a narrow passage we were to go through along the reef. A light on the hill above the beach and a second lower light marked the narrow passage. When the boat was maneuvered so that the two lights were one above the other, the boat would be lined up properly to pass through the dangerous rocks that lined the passage. But that night, there's only one light. Two elders were waiting on the landing to meet us, but the crossing took much longer than usual. After watching for hours for signs of a boat, the elders tired and fell asleep, neglecting to turn on the second light, the lower light. As a result of the passage, the passage through the reef was not clear. The captain maneuvered the boat as best he could toward the one upper light on the shore, while a crewman held the borrowed flashlight over the bow, searching for the rocks ahead. We could hear the breakers casting over the reef. When we were close enough to see them, with the flashlight, the captain frantically shouted, reverse and backed away to try again to locate the passage. After many attempts, he knew it would be impossible to find the passage. All we could do is reach the harbor at Apia, 40 miles away. We were helpless against the ferocious power of the elements. I do not remember ever being where it was so dark. We made no progress for the first hour even though the engine was at full throttle. The boat would struggle up a mountainous wave and then pause in exhaustion at the top of the crest with the propellers out of water. The vibration of the propellers would shake the boat almost to pieces before it slid down the other side. We were lying spread-eagled on the cover of the cargo hold, holding on with our hands on one side and with our toes locked on the other to keep from being washed overboard. Brother Mark Littleford lost hold and was thrown against the low iron rail. His head was cut, but the rail kept him from being washed away. Eventually, we moved ahead and near daylight, finally pulled into the harbor up here. Boats were lashed to one another for safety. There were several deep at the pier. 
We crawled across them, trying not to disturb those sleeping on deck. We made our way to Pasenga, dried our clothing, and headed for Valiauto to organize the new stake. I do not know who had been waiting at the uh, beach at Maldasanua. I refuse to let them tell me, but it is true that without that lower light, we all might have been lost. There is in our hymn book a very old and seldom sung hymn that is very special meaning to me. Brightly beams our Father's mercy from his lighthouse evermore, but to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. Let the lower light be burning, send a gleam across the way. Some poor fainting, struggling seaman, you may rescue, you may save. Dark the night of sin is settled, loud the angry billows roar. Eager eyes are watching, longing for the lights along the shore. Trim your feeble lamp, my brother, some poor sailor tempest-tossed, trying now to reach the harbor, in the darkness may be lost. I speak today to those who may be lost and are searching for the lower light to help guide them back. It was understood from the beginning that immortality would fall short of being perfect. It was not expected that we would live without transgressing one law or another, for the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord. From the pearl of great price, we understand that no unclean thing can dwell in the kingdom of God. So always provided for all who sin to repent and become worthy of the presence of the Father in heaven once more. A mediator, a redeemer was chosen, one who would live his life perfectly, commit no sin, and offer himself a sacrifice for sin to answer the ends of the law and to all those who have broken heart and a contrite spirit and to none else can the ends of the law be answered. Concerning the importance of the atonement, in Alma we learn, it is expedient that an atonement should be made or else all mankind must unavoidably perish. If you had made no mistakes, then you do not need the atonement. If you have made mistakes, and all of us have, whether minor or serious, then you have an enormous need to find out how it can be erased so that you can, are no longer in darkness. Jesus Christ is the light and life of the world. As we fix our gaze on his teachings, we'll be guided to the harbor of spiritual safety. The third article of faith states, we believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved 
by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. Pastor Joseph F. Smith taught, men cannot forgive their own selves. They cannot cleanse themselves from the consequences of their sin. Men can stop sinning and can do right in the future. And so far as their acts are acceptable before the Lord, before the Lord, they can become worthy of consideration. But who shall repair the wrongs they have done to themselves and to others, which seem impossible for them to repair themselves? By the atonement of Jesus Christ, the sins of the repentant shall be washed away. Though they be crimson, they shall be made white as wool. This is the promise given to you. We do not know how exactly the Lord accomplished the atonement, but we do know that cruel torture of the crucifixion was only a part of the horrific pain which began in Gethsemane and that sacred side of suffering that was completed at Golgotha. Luke records, he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not thy will, but my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat, sweat was it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So far as I've been able to tell, there's only one account in the Savior's own words that describes what he endured in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Revelations record, for behold, I, God, have suffered those things for all, that they might not suffer if they would repent. But if they would not repent, they must suffer even as I. Which suffering caused myself, even God, the greatest of all, to tremble because of the pain and to bleed at every pore. Throughout your life, there may be times when you have gone places you never should have gone and done things you never should have done. If you turn away from sin, you'll be able one day to know the peace that comes from following the pathway of complete repentance. <clears throat> no matter what our transgressions have been, no matter how much our actions may have hurt others, that guilt can all be wiped out. To me, perhaps the most beautiful phrase in all scripture is when the Lord said, Behold, he who has repented of his sins, the same is forgiven, and I, the Lord, remember them no more. That is the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the atonement, to take anyone who comes, anyone who will join, and put them through an experience so that at the end of their life, they can go through the veil having repented of their sin and having been washed clean through the blood of Christ. That is what Latter-day Saints do around the world. That is the light we offer to those who are in darkness and have 
lost their way. Wherever our members and missionaries may go, our message is one of faith and hope in the Savior, Jesus Christ. President Joseph Fielding Smith wrote the lyrics to the hymn, Does the Journey Seem Long? He was a dear friend of mine. It contains encouragement and promises to those who seek to follow the teachings of the Savior. From the journey, does the journey seem long? The path rugged and steep. Are there briars and thorns on the way? Do sharp stones cut your feet as you struggle to rise to the heights through the sleet of the day? Is your heart faint and sad? Your soul weary within as you toil neath your burden of care? Does the load semi-heave, heavy seem? You're forced not to lift. Is there no one your burden to share? Let your heart be not faint. Now the journey's begun. There's one who still beckons to you. So look upward in joy and take hold of his hand. He will lead you to heights that are new, a land holy and pure, where no trouble doth, all trouble doth end and your life shall be free from all sin, where no tear shall be shed, for no sorrows remain. Take his hand, and with him enter in. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.